It was completely dark. I see him standing at the back door. Bam! He's getting some kind of sick thrill from what he's doing. He just got pleasure in inflicting pain on other people. As soon as I walked in, the blood had just soaked all the way through. He looked over his shoulder as I drew my weapon. He chased her, he hit her with an axe handle. A blunt instrument to beat the victims to death. It was just so brutal. There was no emotion. He's a serial killer. Traumatic, it was devastating. It was like front page news. It was like a big deal. I mean, it was always there every day. Thank God we stopped him. So you're in private practice? I've been in private practice since 1987. Beautiful office. Yeah, things worked <laughs> out pretty good. So um, let's go back to 1984. Sure. You know, when we got the case, when it's submitted to the DA's office, we get a, a file with police reports. So you don't know much about it, but it has a good bit of information in it. And when I first got the case, as you probably know, most criminal cases are plea bargained. Well, this was one, as soon as I got, I said, we're not plea bargaining in this case. This guy's going to trial, and this guy's going to jail. It was 1984. Marty Keach was a young prosecutor in the district attorney's office in Las Vegas. The case was the Savage Axe Handle attack on Nancy and Chris Berry. This guy was Alex Christopher Ewing. And listening to Keach, it's easy to see why he was determined to put Ewing away. He started beating her started beating the husband back and forth. She, he, he then, uh, as she was trying to get the phone, he started beating her and beating her and beating her, and she played dead. And that, the only time he stopped beating her was when she played dead. And then he, then he proceeded to beat the husband until he thought he was dead. Now, he was unconscious, he wasn't dead, but as far as Ewing was concerned, it, it, it was clear he thought he had just killed two people and didn't have any problem with that. That's what really got me was this guy was cold-blooded. I mean, this was a senseless, unprovoked beating to what he thought was death. He thought he just killed two people and had no problem with it. I'm Kevin Vaughn, an investigative reporter at Nine News in Denver. This is part two of Blame, the Fear All These Years. We're telling the story of hammer attacks in January 1984, that left four people dead and sent shockwaves through the Denver community. Attacks that would go unsolved for more than 30 years. Attacks that would be linked by DNA to Alex Ewing in the summer of 2018. I'd only been a prosecutor maybe four or five months when I got the case. I was a new young prosecutor. But still, you know, you have certain perception of, uh, uh, of different types of criminals. And the criminal that's willing to shoot you with the gun is different than a criminal that's willing to beat you to death face-to-face, hand-to-hand combat. This guy isn't, he's not looking to, to kill at distance. He wants to be involved in the killing and, and actively involved. With its high ceilings, dark wood, and marble floors, Keech's office a few blocks from downtown Las Vegas has the look, feel, and sound of a courtroom. And as he talks about his dealings with Alex Ewing 35 years ago, he argues as he might before a jury, using the attack earlier that same year on Roy Williams in Kingman, Arizona, to drive home a point. And the fact that when he entered that home in Kingman, he picked up a rock outside before he went in, was clear he went in there with the intent to kill. And the fact that he did the exact same thing in Henderson, when he picked up that ax handle outside the house, and carried it in, inside the house. 
He wasn't going in there to steal. He was going in there to kill. And that was pretty obvious. And the brutal way he beat these people, uh, I remember the pictures, there was blood everywhere. And I mean everywhere. It, it was just a brutal, brutal beating. Was this the first case like this you had handled as a young prosecutor? I've had a few other what I would call serial criminals um, over the course of the three years I was there. This was probably the first one because this, this guy was serial. I mean, we get recidivists, people who commit crimes. But a lot of times they're, in, in those days, they were, they were drug-related offenses. So you've got a guy that's got three or four drug-related offenses. He's got a drug problem as much as anything. And, and, and a lot of theft cases, um, you see a guy that's got three or four theft cases. You see he's got money problems, he's got work problems, and most of the time he also had drug problems. So, I mean, we, did, I, I, we always see recidivists. But this guy was different. This, to me, okay, this guy was a sociopath. He, he, was, a serial, he was a serial killer. The first hurdle for prosecutors was convincing a judge that there was enough evidence to take Ewing to trial. It turned out to be pretty easy. After hearing some of the evidence, a judge ordered Ewing to face multiple charges, including two counts of attempted murder with a deadly weapon, escape, and burglary. There is any reason why any of you cannot sit as fair and impartial jurors in this case. Questioning of the jurors at the beginning of the case is done under oath. Keach realized his wish to face Ewing in a courtroom before a jury in late February 1985. Clark will now administer that oath to the prospective jurors. You all please stand. Then it was time for the jurors to hear from the first witness. We have to the the 911 dispatcher who answered Nancy Berry's call for help. And sent officers to her home, sirens screaming. Then they heard from one of those officers, rookie Yuta Chambers. Well, I think what their premise was is that yes, uh, Ewing had escaped, but he hadn't done these, that we were just pinning all these crimes on him because he was the escapee. And um, so they were asking me a lot of questions about, um, you know, did, did I ever, did I see him when I came to the house? You know, uh, and, and I hadn't. On the second day, the jury heard from another Henderson police officer who narrated a choppy VHS videotape shot from a helicopter. It began with aerial images of the Texaco station where Ewing escaped, then followed roads to the Barry home and traced Ewing's suspected path into the Nevada desert and over the hills the video zooming in on the marina at Lake Mead where he was eventually intercepted and captured by a park ranger. State prosecutors called their star witness to the stand this afternoon. Just as with Ewing's escape and with the attack on the Berries, the trial got extensive media coverage in the Las Vegas area. Nancy Berry, the only eyewitness in the case against Ewing, told the jury of the events that occurred on that night. She explained how she discovered Ewing, dressed only in red shorts and tennis shoes, standing in her kitchen here in this home. Side note, that voice may sound familiar. If it does, and even if it doesn't, you should be warned. There's adult language ahead. He was like a mythical character living out in the middle of bumfuck Oklahoma. That's Rick Kirkham, and if that name means something to you, it's probably because you watched the Netflix series Tiger King. Who owned 1,200 tigers and lions and bears and shit. Long before he was the producer of Tiger King TV, 
He was a young reporter for KSNV News 3 in Las Vegas. The woman says she then ran to the bedroom where her husband was sleeping. According to Barry, the defendant followed and in the course of events beat her and Chris Barry with the handle from a pickaxe. As Nancy Barry looks back on it now, what was that like to be in a courtroom and see him and be in the same room with you? I felt kind of angry, actually. I mean, I wasn't like scared he was in custody, you know, but I felt, I did feel angry toward him at the time. I have to be honest with you. That's what I remember feeling. In all, Keech and a fellow prosecutor introduced 36 pieces of evidence over three days of testimony. They included the weathered, broken, bloody axe handle found on the Barry's kitchen table, the red jogging shorts with white trim that Ewing wore after the escape and during the attack, and the cheetah tennis shoes that left behind distinctive zigzag sole prints that investigators followed into the desert. But it was their final exhibit that landed like a gut punch. Nancy Barry's harrowing 911 call played after extensive objections from the defense an argument they lost. In the courtroom, the effect on jurors could not be underestimated. There wasn't a dry eye in the, in the courtroom, and there wasn't a single person in that courtroom who wasn't scared of the guy sitting at the table next to me. It was clear this guy was a killer, and he had no qualms about killing. Of course, they had no idea that one day Colorado authorities would allege that Ewing already had killed. The defense took almost no time at all, suggesting Ewing was a victim of mistaken identity. His public defender introduced four Polaroid photographs, two of houses Ewing was accused of prowling around, and two of the Barry's home. And he introduced a document detailing an agreement with prosecutors that the black, red, and white shoes Ewing wore could have been purchased at any Mervyn store in the country. In other words, the footprints could have been left by anyone who shopped there. Ewing never took the stand, grumbling when the jury wasn't in the room, complaining to the judge that his lawyers had let him down. Throughout his trial, Alex Ewing has insisted he hasn't been represented fairly by his own defense. Now, with testimony in from all of the state's witnesses, Ewing says he isn't being allowed to take the stand on his own behalf. The trial is expected to go before the jury sometime tomorrow morning. At District Court, Rick Kirkham, News 3. On February 28, 1985, after less than an hour of deliberations, the jury found Ewing guilty. Guilty of escape. Guilty of burglary. Guilty of two counts of attempted murder. Two months later, Ewing was back in the same courtroom to be sentenced. Only two people spoke. Chris Berry described having to move his young family out of their home because it was now nothing more than a crime scene. It caused our lives to be turned upside down, he said. And the other person to address the judge? Ewing himself. He did speak at the sentencing at length. And uh, he professed his innocence and said, well, I'm sorry these people got hurt, but it wasn't me. I wouldn't do anything like that. And I mean, as cold-blooded, as, as cold-blooded as, as, as one could be. And when you know, because some cases... It's not beyond a reasonable doubt, it's to 100% certainty. And this is one of them, okay? When you know for 100% certainty that this man did everything that I said he did, and he stands up there as coldly as a human being can and as calmly and says, I didn't do it. 
I didn't do it. You know what you're dealing with is a sociopath. This man is, he's a stone cold killer, plain and simple. Ewing's plea of innocence didn't sway the judge, who handed down a 110-year sentence. He was sentenced to everything we could give him. 40 years on each of the two counts of attempted murder with use of a deadly weapon. He got the maximum sentence on each charge. 20 years for escape, 10 years for burglary. All running consecutively. That means he's supposed to finish one sentence before he can start serving the next one. The longest sentence the judge could give him. The judge in the case uh, was Myron Levitt. And Myron Levitt was a great judge. Uh, he had an unbelievable sense of right and wrong and had a, an uncanny ability to really see who was deserving of, uh, uh, of a break and who should receive uh, the, most, the most severe punishment. One of the longest sentences ever handed down in Nevada in a crime that didn't involve an actual murder. Judge Levitt uh, he, he's no longer living. Um, he sat through the trial. He heard and saw everything that I heard and saw. Uh, he knew this guy was a sociopathic serial killer. And he knew the only way to stop him was to give him the maximum sentence for the maximum time that he could impose. And he did just that without hesitation. Alex Christopher Ewing was locked away for what must have seemed like forever to the 24-year-old. In the years ahead, he passed the time filing fruitless appeals and buying personal ads in newspapers, looking for something on the outside that he couldn't get on the inside. Incarcerated white male, 28 years, wants to correspond with down-to-earth woman, 18 to 45. Interested in relationship. Alex C. Ewing, number 20866, Reno Gazette Journal, May 10, 1989. Lonely inmate, 35 years old, looks 25, brown hair, green eyes, desires to write down-to-earth woman, interested in getting to know someone that wants to build a relationship on honesty and trust. Please write to Alex C. Ewing, number 20866, Reno Gazette Journal, October 11, 1995. As the years dragged on, his search for a love connection moved online. My name is Alex, 57 years old, adventurous outdoor type, camping, traveling, exercising, likes animals, old movies, old cars, a homebody who likes good conversations and cooking. I'm looking to meet a woman in her 50s for the purpose of becoming a pen pal friend. Not to sound pathetic, but after doing as much time as I have, a letter, especially from a woman, would mean a lot to me and something to look forward to. I've been no saint in my life, but I want to do better. Meet an inmate.com. Over those same decades in Colorado, a sense of frustration settled in among investigators as the murders of Bruce, Deborah, and Melissa Bennett in Aurora and Patricia Louise Smith in Lakewood went unsolved. First, 10 years went by. Particularly given the high profile and the number of man hours committed to it uh, for the first several years, uh, thousands of man hours and the fact that that it's one partly because of the nature of the crime it's one that everyone would like to solve nobody likes an unsolved case but this one we really would like to to clear the passage of a second decade amplified the angst for detectives i had no idea i'd be working this case 20 years later there was renewed hope in 2010 with confirmation that the same killer was responsible for the smith 
and Bennett murders. There is a DNA match that's been established between these two homicide scenes. An optimism that grew in the years ahead as science continued to evolve and improve, and detectives started solving decades-old cases. I think this type of case is gonna be a forensic breakthrough that's gonna resolve the case. Optimism tempered by the fear they were chasing a ghost. My personal opinion is, based upon the evidence, there's a whole bunch of things that come into play, um, that the guy is probably deceased. How much have you thought about Alex Christopher Ewing over the years? I haven't thought much about him, but I thought about the victims. Because I'll tell you, they were really nice people. I don't, I, you've met the wife. I understand the, the husband's uh, since passed. They were really nice people. And what they went through, it was pretty clear they were never going to uh, 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 get over it. My guess is I haven't spoken, spoken to her in years, since then, really. But my guess is she's still um, suffering from it. I was only in the DA's office for uh, three years. And so I, I was fortunate to, to get involved in some pretty serious cases. I had a few capital murder cases in that short time. I had these cases. But the, they stick out because, because I had maybe 25 trials in, in, in three years. So... Um, I can't say I remember all 25 of them with the same specificity, but this one was one that... Have you seen the pictures? Yes. Well, if you saw the pictures of the crime scene, you'll never forget this. And if you heard these people tell you what happened to them, you'll never forget it. Trial or no trial, you'll never forget the story. Listen, this was a life-altering experience for these two people. Okay? Aside from the physical injuries... The emotional, the emotional trauma that they both suffered, and the wife more than the husband, and I think that in large part because the husband doesn't remember it. She remembers everything in vivid detail. She remembers every stroke of that axe handle coming down on her husband's head. I mean, it's, it's, it was a life-altering experience, and she, she, I would be surprised if you told me she ever got over it. I don't know how someone could. In Colorado, every time the calendar flipped to a new year, the odds anyone would be arrested in the Smith and Bennett killing slipped further away. That is, until an obscure legal battle changed everything. In 2013, the Nevada State Legislature amended a 1997 law requiring DNA testing of those convicted of a felony. The original measure was not retroactive, meaning people like Ewing, who'd been convicted way back in 1985, had never been required to surrender blood or saliva to develop a DNA profile. That changed in 2013, when a slight amendment made the law retroactive. Then, for more than three years, the authorities who were supposed to carry it out simply ignored it. Finally, in 2016, the district attorney whose office oversees the state's DNA database asked the state's attorney general for a legal opinion. Question, does NRS 176.0913 allow a biological specimen for DNA analysis to be collected from any prisoner convicted of a felony offense who is presently in the custody of the Nevada Department of Corrections, regardless of the date of conviction. In other words, were officials required to test everyone in the prison system or merely allowed to? The state's attorney general didn't mince words in his conclusion. NRS 176.0913 requires a biological specimen to be collected from any prisoner convicted of a felony offense 
who is presently in the custody of the Nevada Department of Corrections, regardless of the date of conviction. But that ruling didn't impose a deadline. And so the state started the systematic testing of every prisoner in the system, a few at a time. It took a year and a half, but in May 2018, it was Ewing's turn. A sheriff's deputy used a swab that looked kind of like a lollipop to collect cells from the inside of his mouth and then sent them off for DNA testing. More than a month went by. And then the dominoes quickly started tumbling. As soon as it was entered in the FBI's CODIS database, Ewing's DNA hit on the DNA from the Bennett case. At the time, the DNA from Patricia Smith's murder was not in the CODIS database. Lakewood detectives had removed the profile while they attempted a new process, known as familial DNA testing, to identify the killer. As soon as they got word of the Bennett match, they resubmitted the Smith DNA to CODIS, and they got an immediate hit. Detectives from Aurora and Lakewood traveled to Nevada, obtained court orders to swab the inside of Ewing's mouth again, and had those samples tested to confirm there hadn't been some kind of a mix-up in CODIS. Each one was a match. Before the JonBenet Ramsey killing, it was the Bennett family murders in Aurora that captured Colorado's attention for years. An unsolved hammer attack on a family in 1984. We broke the story that there was finally a suspect in these notorious cases. Now, Kevin Vaughn from our 9 Wants to Know team has learned Aurora police finally have their possible suspect. They didn't sleep on this case. Neither did science. It was January 1984, the dead of winter. A madman was praying on the metro area. Four attacks in 12 days. I heard Kim screaming, uh, wake up, there's some man trying to hit us with a hammer. And then three days later, police and prosecutors had a big press conference to confirm the news. Today represents the first public and formal step on what will prove to be a long journey towards justice in this case. District Attorney George Brockler, whose office will prosecute the Bennett murders, has now seen that journey into its third year. Back then, he seemed to know it would be a long haul. There will be other questions about when will this case reach resolution. I can't tell you that. I've handled some significant cases in my day, and I have never once predicted how long it would take to get to the end of the justice-seeking process. And that holds true for a case even like this one that's 34 years old. But I promise you that we will do everything we can to uphold all the rights of the accused in this case, but also vigorously pursue justice on our end. Marty Keach is a long way from the young prosecutor who took a case against Alex Christopher Ewing to a jury. But in some ways, his work in private practice has given him a unique perspective on what those Colorado families have been grappling with for decades. I represent a lot of plaintiffs in wrongful death cases. And one thing I tell my clients is, um, the only thing I can get for you is money, compensation for the case. What I can't get for you is the only thing you really want, which is to get your loved one back. And, and that's, the only, that's the only thing I would tell these victims in Colorado. The one thing they want, no matter what happens, they can never get that back. Never unring that bell. We can never give them back what was taken from them. And, and, and so often, um, victims feel like, well, at least if, 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 I, if, if we get him, um, I'll get my life back together. There is a, a, a sense of closure in, in, in getting justice for your case, and that's a good thing. But you never 
or you're never made whole. You never get back that, that which was taken from you. After so long, justice for the families of Patricia Smith and the Bennetts is still a possibility. But if there's one certainty of the American legal system, it's this. Nothing happens quickly. It can take years to prosecute a murder case. And in this case, it can't even start until Ewing is extradited to Colorado to face charges. Do you object to being turned over to Colorado authorities? Or like the This story is far from over, and we have more episodes in production. We don't yet know how this case will be decided or when it might reach conclusion in a Colorado courtroom. But we know this. Connie Bennett, who discovered the murders of her son, daughter-in-law, and granddaughter, is nearly 87 years old and desperate to see Alex Christopher Ewing face a judge and a jury. I want to be there when uh, he's tried. I want to see him and just look at his... I've seen pictures of him. He looks like everybody else. He doesn't look like... He's apparently a monster. Be sure to subscribe to Blame wherever you find your favorite podcasts, because we'll be following this case to the end, however long that might take. Blame is a production of KUSA-TV 9 News in Denver, Colorado, and Tegna Media. Nicole Vapp is executive producer. Anna Houston is producer and editor. I'm your host, investigative reporter Kevin Vaughn. Additional production assistance from Brian Wenland. The original television coverage of the trial of Alice Christopher Ewing was from KSNV 3 News in Las Vegas. There's much more, including photographs, interviews, and some of our old coverage of this case at 9news.com blame. If you like blame, the fear all these years, subscribe at Podbean, Apple Podcasts, or any popular podcasting app. And check out our first two investigative podcasts. Blame, was the death of Jill Wells an accident or murder? and Blame Lost at Home. You can like us on our Facebook page, Blame Podcast. And if you've got suggestions or tips for a future investigative podcast, reach us at blame at 9news.com.